I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and you're listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. The United Nations estimates 60 million children and infants have been abandoned by their families and live on their own or in orphanages in the world. And in the United States, more than 7,000 children are abandoned each year. The abandonment of children is an extreme form of child neglect stemming from many causes. Joining me now is Sarah Keppen, child advocate, founder of The Hope Box, and author of Call to Hope, the story of Sarah Keppen. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Well, first of all, could you tell me about your story and what inspired you to write your book, Call to Hope? This work that I do to advocate for children, you don't just go out and find it, it kind of finds you. Um, as anything that we all do, you know, that become passionate about it becomes part of our story and, and is knitted into who we are. And I grew up with, um, there's 12 kids in my family. My mom was a midwife. I helped her deliver over 500 babies. Like I loved children and all I wanted to do was just be a mom. Like I love motherhood. And so I wanted, my friends, my family had aspirations for college and big things. And I love that stuff too. And that stuff's amazing. But my heartbeat was to mother. I had no idea that mothering um, would end up becoming the heartbeat for this country. I didn't, I didn't realize that that was even a thing. I thought too small at that time. And so um, I got married young. I had 19 my husband and I were in love, we're young, passionate, you know, 19 year olds thinking we're adults, whatever. <laughs> so, and from there, um, we both worked, started to have babies. I had my first baby by 20, had kids. And all of a sudden, um, I just started noticing that my husband and I were in marriage and family ministry, um, so many broken families around me and moms really struggling and just brokenness and wanting to build strong families and communities because if you have a strong family you can withstand anything and help others too you lift up others and you know people I think people always long for that connection and community and feeling like they belong Um, but when you haven't grown up that way or you've experienced a lot of trauma it's not something that comes easily to you or it's unknown and we know we know our drama right we know our trauma we got that we don't always know the healthy side. And so that was something that became a huge heart of my husband and I. And we started working with the state uh, with defects with families, uh, children and family services. And we would walk along the side of these families that lost their kids or families in crisis. And we were just a community aspect. Maybe they had never seen a dinner. Maybe they didn't know what that looked like to have a family dinner. Maybe they had no grid for what it looked like to, you know, have a safe place to go to where there wasn't drugs or alcohol or, you know, feeling put down. And so we really became that family aspect in the community and we were a safe place for a lot of people that needed that. And then from there, um, one day the kids are off at school and, and I'm getting ready quickly and really something miraculous happened, came over me and immediately I felt like one of my children were missing. God just came upon me and one of my kids were missing and said, pray for your son and pray for him to come home and pray for his mom. I wasn't even thinking of adoption. I wasn't even thinking of, you know, foster care and 
that type of aspect. There's a whole world there we can talk about in a little bit. Um, and when that happened, my husband came home that night and I asked him, I said, hey, after the kids go to bed, can we go sit on the front porch? I need to share with you what's in my heart. And I did. And he just looked at me, and said, sweetie, I don't want your heart to get broken. We're not with foster care in that manner right now. We're not adapted parents you know we're not homestead approved are you sure you heard from God I was like I feel crazy right now I feel like one of my kids are missing and I can't explain it and so he's like okay well let's just pray and we did and two weeks to that day um an older lady walked up to me never met never seen kind of picked her out in a room had no idea who she was walked up to me at church and said you don't know me but my daughter three years ago was going to ask you to adapt my grandson and she changed her mind, but she's asking if you would care for him now. She can't do it. And she had no idea what had happened to, like, these last two weeks. I was feeling like a crazy mom. I don't know. Like, I was like, something's wrong with me. I need to check me in. Like, I, you know, you, know, you just feel like something's missing. And then um, he showed up with a little bicycle, a suitcase, and a car seat. And she got out of the car with him and he ran up to see the kids and they started playing and he was so excited to be around kids and I turned to look at her and I will never ever forget her face because I could see how much she loved him and how much she just wanted him to have a childhood and be okay and the, the struggle within her face and she turned and looked at me and said he's not eating a couple days he might be hungry and, I, oh. and just left and I was like like as a mom, my mom heart just exploded. And um, I wanted to call the state for an advocate for her, for him and me. And they said, there's nothing illegal about putting a child in a safe place. We're not going to touch you. So here I had this little boy who had experienced severe trauma. And um, you know about trauma. You talk about it all the time. So you totally understand that. But he at three years old had lived a lot of trauma in his life. And she she had too so had his mother and she she really wanted to protect him and that is the greatest gift any mother can give to a child and so we raised him and she's mommy number one because she had him and we're so grateful and I'm mommy number two because I'm raising him but he can love us differently and love us both passionately that is incredible that this woman was able to recognize that her son who she loves and I'm sure she didn't want to give up but and not necessarily give up, but she yeah. knew he, he had needs that she couldn't fulfill. And the fact that she was able to come to you, that that's incredible. Were you guys able to find help for her? So we tried um, at that time. She just really um, wrestled with a lot of stuff and just couldn't seem to, um, you know, hold down a job, figure things out. Um, you know, I really feel like deep down she fought very hard to rise up yeah <laughs> and, and she did and deep down I'm telling you she loved her child and people look at me like I'm crazy when I say that or talk about that because nobody wakes up and says hey today I'm gonna abandon my child not get myself together and fail as a person nobody does that no that way you know I'm a mom myself and I don't wake up and say hey today I'm gonna fail my child like that that's just not even a thing but through series of circumstances and um, struggles and trauma that had happened to her she just didn't have the ability to rise above it you know and 
unfortunately what happens is most of the time these children become like the parent um they become the caregiver they become the protector even of the person that is putting them in these situations and so um that's really what happened i remember years later uh, we had moved to georgia my husband's a chiropractor and he was in school and his biological grandmother stayed in contact with and she asked if she could come visit and she did and she came out and she was watching um, my son Elijah and she said, you know, it's so weird. He's, he's, he's a kid. He's able to be a kid because he wasn't able to be a kid when he was younger. And, and I looked at her and said, that's the point. Every child deserves a childhood. And that was the whole reason why she made the hard decision she did. And so um, she was just so blown away by the change in him and the freedom to just be a kid. Um, I, I think sometimes we don't realize we kind of just tell people to get over things, right? Yeah, <laughs> you don't just you don't just get over certain traumas, okay? You don't just it's you you grow, you get stronger, you heal, you are able to um, rise above sometimes with great effort <laughs> and ability and help others and pull them up out of it. But it's not something that everybody there's good days and bad days for everybody. And it's not something that everybody can just rise up out of due to the, the, the circumstances and, you know, that we all face. And so I'm blessed today. Elijah today now is uh, turning 15 this month. Oh my goodness. Already wow. get his permit. He's a great kid. Um, he's really, um, able so well to communicate and one one of the first things I would say we had to work through with him and the trauma is he didn't have the ability to communicate feelings and I think that that happens a lot with children and especially abandoned neglect and abused children and 75% of our most at-risk kids in this country are ages three and under and um, his he just couldn't communicate everything was anger every emotion was anger every feeling was anger he didn't know how to communicate so one of the first things we did is as a child for him is get him into play therapy and I don't know if you know anything about play therapy for kids mm -hmm. but it's amazing a high proponent if you're a foster mom if you're an adoptive parent or if you have a child just with inabilities to communicate play therapy I cannot recommend enough um, we got to play therapist and if you get a child before age six you can reverse damage it's after age six scientifically it's more permanent but god but yeah it's more permanent as far as the brain goes so i knew i had three years to really help him you know come to a healthy place in this area and one day um we had written on the fridge emotions and he put colors to the emotions and so just because i identified maybe red his anger he might identify blue you know, I don't know. So it's good to let them assess the colors that they identify with, depending on what they've been through. And so we had, we had this hanging on the fridge and he came down one day and he was so upset about something. And I said, point to me, what do you feel? Point to the color you feel. And it was anxious. And I said, are you, are you anxious? Like butterflies in your stomach? Like you're nervous? And he goes, yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh my okay, gosh. Well, we can deal with that. We, we got this. I will work through that. And so, and then there was another time, you know, he walked down the stairs, I'm making dinner and he goes, mama, Sarah. So yeah, Elijah. And he goes, I, I frustrated. And I said, okay, can I do anything for you? He goes, nope. And walked right <laughs> up 
but that was so powerful for him to learn to express um, that. And so that these are keys and why it's so important to get to these kids at a young age, even at infancy. I know infants mm-hmm. are left in hospitals. They should be bonding. They should have that eye contact, the smell. All of these things will affect the trauma for the rest of their lives. And we can address it so early if we understand what the issues are. When I realized what my trauma was, it was a sexual abuse. I didn't realize it was PTSD. It was last year. My daughter was five and I noticed I was getting really short with her and really um, just impatient, I guess. I was just, you know, and she was like, I I told her to not yell at me. She's like, well, you're yelling at me. And so you're teaching me how to yell. And I just remember being like, oh my gosh, I'm such a terrible mom. Oh my gosh, my daughter is like telling me what I'm doing wrong. My five-year-old is telling me what I'm doing wrong. And, And, you know, there was a point and that was around the time I decided to go into treatment and I didn't realize how much my trauma was affecting her. Um, And yeah, that was, that was a huge thing. It was really, but once I got out of treatment, it was just last year. I just, I've seen a difference in her when, when I'm able to regulate my own emotions. Um, So that's, that's incredible. She's not feeling your feelings. Children are feelers. They feel their environment. They feel surroundings and personalities play a big part of that. I have a daughter that's a feeler. So she can walk in a room and feel everything. Everybody's emotions. Yes, happy, sad. And sometimes she, she, when she was little, she would just look at me and just tears. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, and kids are so in tune, just like dogs and animals. Like, yes. they're just so in tune. And sometimes when we go through, especially things like sexual abuse or trauma, we um, tend to almost block out certain things. Yes. It almost becomes normal to put up put up a wall or respond in a way instead of responding we tend to react exactly it's it's a reaction so when you can get in that it shifts shifts everything in the room the whole feeling of the room you're absolutely right and I think that's amazing that you were intuitive enough to do all of these things with Elijah I mean you're a beautiful human I mean this is that's amazing um Tell me about your process in adopting Elijah. Oh, talk about, you know, I like to call myself a little Esther. <laughs> um, <laughs> calls me that all the time. Um, I am one of these people that will color outside the lines. Um, I'm, if you're an A personality, I will drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, we can get around this. <laughs> um, wow, that's you know, <laughs> so I'm a fixer for sure, by far, is it bring a crisis to me and I'll find a way to fix it. And um, so what happened is, is I started, I reached out, of course, to the states, I told you in the beginning, and they wouldn't help me at all, because there's nothing illegal about putting a child in safe hands. Mm -hmm. Um, And a mother, for instance, in the state of Georgia can even give somebody guardianship up to 12 months if she needs to into a safe place. And so there's state laws, there's guardianships, adoptions or abandonment laws or safe haven laws and every single state keep in mind they all vary mm-hmm. so if you really want to contact um the hope box or somebody that kind of understands that or re- do your own research on that um so i started researching in the state of colorado adoption abandonment what were, were my options because 
here I had this little kid that had been through so much and I didn't know how to advocate for him to protect him. Um, his father had gotten in contact with me. He was so excited to find out Elijah was with, with us. He really had prayed Elijah would be in a safe family. Um, he was actually a recovering drug addict and he just really couldn't parent himself, but he was excited about the opportunity for his son. And so to process through that, so I had gotten in contact, but at one point, Elijah actually had been traded for drugs. Um, uh-huh. And his dad was, a, you know, involved with the drug dealers and with drugs. And he called me and said, Elijah just got traded. And I was like, what? Um, it was a visitation with his mom. It was a whole thing. Um, I immediately, when we got him back, went to the courts and I had studied the law and find out if a child's in your home for six months, there's state laws and constitutional laws, but constitutionally, if he's in your home for six months, you have the right to go to the courts and file for custody of that child. You're standing at that point. So at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't allow him to be trauma, go through any, anything else anymore. Like we were done and kept, we would, we would, we would get through things and he would get backtracked. We get through things and, you know, and so I went to the courts, I filed for custody of him. I was told it was impossible that non-blood relatives cannot get custody. I said, well, I'm going to try because he's a child and we should be defending children in this country. And so I did. I filed um, the courts uh, within a year were able to grant me custody, full custody, and then sole custody. That was about a year process. But let me tell you about the first court date. I show up to the first court date. This is in my book. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm not a lawyer, didn't know what was happening. We're meeting with the family court facilitator, his mother and I, she didn't want to take him, but she didn't also want to give up rights. And I was just, I was like, well, something has to be done for this child. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so um, she started getting upset uh, um, just because she just wanted things to stay how they were. Uh, so the family court facilitator called a last minute court in like 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, like an emergency court hearing. And she said, this is the way you approach a judge. This is what you do. She started explaining things in my head. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm I'm insane right now. So I walked out. I looked at my husband and I said, I need a lawyer and I need one in 10 minutes. Like I need one super fast. I was like 10, 15 minutes. And he looked at me and goes, honey, I love you, but you're not getting a lawyer. And a lot of time they have not even read up on the case. They have no idea. You've not, you know, no consultation. I was like, watch me <laughs> praying up and down the halls of the courtroom. And I was like, God, who do I talk to? Who do I talk to? Lord, what in the Lord to talk to that young man? And I said, hi, are you in family law? He goes, no. But in that room right there, there's about 20 of them in that courtroom standing in a circle. And I was like, great. And like, you know, the double doors of a courtroom, it's Mm -hmm. really like a dramatic scene. I'm like dramatically opening the doors all passionately. And I was like, my name is Sarah Kep and I need a lawyer and I need one right now. And they all turn around. And one of them knew me as a child. His name is Mark Bittison, amazing. And he turned around, he goes, Sarah, Sarah Robertson? That's my maiden name. And I was like, Mark. He's like, what do you mean? And I told him what was going on. He's like, oh yeah, this guy right here will walk in with you. I'm telling you, the judge's face was like, okay. Because she could tell he just signed in what happened. Um, So he walked in with me, uh, got me going, basically referenced the 
the constitutional law that I had standing. And then the net, that evening, I got a call from the firm. And two of the lawyers called me up and said, we don't know who you are, but you're the talk of this firm. You're going to be watching this case. It's awesome. They never charged me anything. They gave me advice when I needed it. They walked me through things. Uh, and that kind of got me started on the process of being able to become one in five in the state of Colorado to take sole custody of a non-blood relative. Like it doesn't happen. And I remember the last day of court, the end of that experience and the judge at the end said, Sarah, off record, I need you to know that people like you do not exist. And she meant it as a compliment, but I found like an anger, like a, like a righteous anger rise up in me because I thought, why wouldn't anybody defend children? Why would we not protect our most, our biggest prize in this country, which are future leaders, presidents, representatives, mm -hmm. dentists, teachers, like, you know, we need professors. Why would we not be protecting our greatest prize in this country? And I became so like, and then I, like I had to like stop myself and I was like, thank you, like take a breath. <laughs> but I really wrestled with that because this attitude of children are just, children are just disposable um, without them, we literally have no future. And without healthy people, we have unhealthy decisions and laws being made and doctors and crises and trauma being created throughout generations. You know, right. when we go through trauma, ourselves remember. And when we're born, we're born with the trauma of our mother and our grandmother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't understand the decisions we make now, we will literally destroy ourselves from within. Right. And I just strongly believe that we can raise amazing men and women and people, and we can all maybe believe different things or come from different sides, which makes us super colorful and amazing and have opinions. But what a, what a great, messy, beautiful thing it is to all work together. I agree. That's a beautiful message. Was, was that the start or was that <laughs> this, was this the brainchild of the hope box? This whole, this, this, what was happening or did more stuff happen? <laughs> I, from there, I started having um, people contact me, word got out, uh, grandparents yeah. that had their ch grandchildren and maybe their, um, kids were addicts and they wanted to protect their grandchildren they only had guardianship guardianship doesn't mean anything um it just basically means you didn't kidnap the child and you can take them to the doctor you absolutely have no rights with guardianship okay. and so um but I started having uh people in churches contact me in the community maybe a child had been left with them a cousin a friend and they didn't know how to protect that child and so I started advocating and helping them get some type of custody or be able to get more rights to protect the child so the trauma would not continue and continue to accrue in that child's life and then one day again I was getting ready <laughs> and the Lord like dropped the hope box on me and I laughed at him I literally was like Mm, Sarah, my name Sarah really fits me well because I started laughing. I was like, nope, not gonna happen. <laughs> I remember almost physically like putting it on a shelf, like spiritually, like, nope, not touching that. And um, then from there, my husband had come to me and he said, you know, I want to be a doctor, a chiropractor. 
I laughed at him and decided I should always have been a doctor's wife. Why haven't we discovered this sooner? <laughs> and uh, but he chose to go to Life University here. It's one of the best uh, chiropractic schools in the country. And so he said, let's go to Georgia. And we didn't know a soul in Georgia. I was ready for a change. The kids were in, we moved to Georgia and I had two years of absolute Jesus latte time and spending time with the Lord and my kids will go to school and Joel will go to school and just rest. It was such a beautiful time and um, taking a breath. And then at the two year mark, I had a dream. And in the dream, it was snowing outside and my brother came in the room and he said, are you okay? And I said, yes, but I know my life will never be simple again. And I woke up and I knew in that moment that everything was about to change in my life. And then I had, was introduced to a friend of mine and she basically said, well, what do you care about? And I started to like, the whole class just kind of came out. It's almost like a, it just all kind of came out about children and how to protect them and what to do. And the whole uh, blueprint of the Hope Box. And she gave me my yes. She looked at me and said, I'll help you get started. This is your thing, but I'll help you get started. And she just gave me my yes. And I was like, are you serious? And we started. And when we started, it was incredible. I said, yes, not knowing that meant that it was going to blow up. <laughs> um, wow. And I immediately, we got in contact with a medical student who got us in contact with KSU, which is an amazing they have a medical school here in Georgia, doctors and nurses and stuff. They do incredible work. And KSU faculty agreed to meet with us like four or five times, like professors, um, laws, nurses, doctors, human services, you know, you name it. Um, and these were some of these people even wrote some of our medical laws. And we met with them, went over the whole blueprint of the Hope Box. And basically at the end of it, they said, there's no reason why you can't legally do this. This is amazing. And then they proceeded to put us in their medical, one of their medical books for every medical student to read about a social service as like thing coming up, the hope box to watch, you know, keep a lookout for. And so now every medical student will read about us at that college. And, and that's kind of was the beginning. And it just kind of went, we accidentally launched our website and when <laughs> we launched till 2016 and the guy hit the you know button and we got the call by the way we're launched and it was just it was just one of those stories where it wasn't about me it's about the heart of the power of people caring passionately about the same thing and coming together as a community to make a difference and it really the, the whole box was nothing to do with me in fact I helped work myself out of a job <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, but it is my hope and my passion to change the systems, to take down what has been broken and build up something that can go for generations and become something strong to impact generations after me. Oh, incredible. Can you, can you tell me um, a little bit about the Hope Box? The Hope Box really deals with anything concerning abandonment issues. And this the three areas we focus are infants left in hospitals. We have 22,000 infants left in hospitals every single year. The oldest case we helped was an 11 month old that had been sitting there. And she looked like a five month old because the state kept closing her case and she had no advocate. Um, the youngest case we helped uh, was a one month old. 
uh, then from there, we fell into sex trafficking. We didn't even know that was a thing. I was mortified when I started getting calls and tips from girls in the trafficking world. Hey, Sarah, I can get a good price for my baby. Um, she talks about my pimp or my madam. She's referring to four different people because they're watched constantly. And I didn't even know that was a thing. I called immediately the state of child and family services. They couldn't help because she had not sold the child yet, even though she said she was going to. Um, I called the police. They couldn't do anything until the child was sold. And so we actually went in to the court hunt and got emergency hearings to protect these children. And so that is a, another avenue and something we fight to protect children when we get tips about that. And then um, another side of abandonment we work on is um, there's safe haven law in every single state within this country. They were enacted in 2002, um, the, the Georgia law was, and that, that's where any mother can relinquish her infant, no questions asked, no matter what's going on. In the state of Georgia, she can do it to any fire, police, hospital, we're bringing EMS in that they've requested. Um, in 2002, though, when the law was first enacted, it was only uh, hospitals, and she only had three days. We were able to amend the law in 2017 and move it to 30 days and add fire and police because Georgia has 159 counties, <laughs> and many, many states throughout this country have a lot of rural areas. So think about it, no matter what state you look at, there could be vast amounts of rural areas. Well, in those areas, there may not be a police station, a hospital, a fire station. It may just be one or the other or a department you know, of human services close by. So that is where it is such a need when, you, when you're somebody that has faced domestic violence, when you have, when you're an immigrant that's afraid you're going to be sent back and so you want to hide your child, we deal with a lot of immigrant issues with sex trafficking, you may not even have your information on you. And that's also why we amended in our safe haven law where a mother's not required to leave her information. She may not know it. She may not be able to give it. And so people don't understand um, the trauma somebody can face. Trust me, Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to get pregnant and abandon my child. <laughs> but through a series of circumstances and unfortunate events, we, in crisis, we don't make great decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's where the hope box comes along the side of a mom, which say they call the hotline. We have full wraparound care. We always ask, is there a reason why you cannot parent? Um, you know, what do you need? We've had moms that just need cribs and need resources or help. You know, second, have you thought about adoption? A lot of moms are very confused about that adoption. Um, they think they'll have to pay for the adoption. They think they'll be judged. And my message to every one of those moms is, you are an answer prayer. Somebody has been praying for you in this child. And if that is, if you cannot parent and you don't have the support or just can't for a reason, we would love to give you all of your options to make an educated decision so you can choose an open adoption. If visits, pictures, you have rights here and what are those rights? Instead of having those rights be taken away from you, we want to empower you. And then last case is safe haven and we will go with them, we'll walk them through that. Um, and that is so powerful to know you're not alone. I can't tell you how many moms have looked at me and with a sigh and said, thank you, something that was so scary you made me feel empowered to make my decision. And we are not an adoption agency. So if she makes that decision, 
that's up to her. We, we will assist her in the crisis and really go in and remove the crisis so that hopefully tomorrow she can wake up knowing she made a good decision for herself. Wow. Well, you were intricate in lobbying for amending legislation, which you were, you were just talking about as the Georgia safe haven law um, in 2017. And you said it was enacted in 2002. Yes, the original so, law was enacted in 2002. We, we were very much, it was the Hope Box that helped amend it in 2017. Wow. Um, what was interesting about that is we realized it was an issue because we were getting reports of moms that we're not enacting the law because they didn't want to give their information because they didn't have it. Mm. And so um, that became an issue. So we decided, I was like, well, let's go change the law. So That's I all. did what I did. <laughs> I, I, I have no experience in changing the law. I have no idea what I'm doing. So I start meeting with legislatives and start meeting with people. Um, we, I, was able to drop the bill, um, you know, David Clark, Representative David Clark and his father-in-law were huge in helping us amend this law. And really we did it in one session. And the funny thing was, is it usually takes two to three years to change a law. We did it in a session. I mean, that, I didn't even know that was impossible. I remember taking pictures with Governor Deal and he was like, you do know you're the talk of the Capitol and that this wow. did not happen. And I was like, really? Why can't you just fix things? <laughs> we should just fix it. So um, it was a really neat experience. It was totally a God experience. And the people of the state just decided to step up and say, you know what, this is outdated and this is a problem. I did at one point have a legislative um, person walk up to me and say, well, aren't you just giving mothers permission to abandon their child? And I, I looked at him and I said, I'll tell you what. If you help me take down domestic violence, sex trafficking, all the immigration issues for mothers and rape issues, this law won't matter anymore. I'll actually work myself out of a job. So do you know how to fix that? <laughs> yes. No, ma'am. And I said, okay, now change the law. <laughs> like, you can fix it. We're good. Wow, yeah. you really know how to get things done. I love it. <laughs> yeah. well, with this law, it gives young mothers a chance to kind of safely give up their child you know when I worked as a reporter in Virginia I can't tell you how many stories I covered well one is too many but um about children being abandoned in dumpsters I I, I was I, I covered two of them you know they're not even giving a child a chance to survive but, you know, like we were talking about earlier, sex trafficking is an issue. What can you tell me a little bit more about when you were getting these tips and you were like, wow, sex trafficking is is an issue that I have to deal with with how are these people? How is this happening to little children? So keep in mind, this issue with children has not really been addressed because children go for the most. Um, they are a great commodity. They go for the most. It's hard to prove because they often can't testify um, in court. Uh, so it's kind of the perfect crime. And if you're a foster kid, well, they lie, right? <laughs> so it's like the perfect crime or if you come from a troubled family. And so understand money is a big part. And where drugs used to be the biggest thing and then you know in the world as far as money and commodity, Trafficking is something where you can reuse somebody over and over again. 
And the two ways infants in particular, they usually start selling them about three months old. Uh, they can, on the black market, dark web, uh, by the way, it's the same thing. Black market, dark web are the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, you don't just go to a building, call it the black market. <laughs> so um, it's the same thing. And and they really refer to like a three-month-old black lab or um, had like a four-month-old golden retriever. And they may refer to them in, in food, animals, different things, uh, you know, it's a commodity. And so the criminals work together, like you and I are talking and collaborating right now. Um, if I have a client that wants a product and I don't have it, I'm going to reach out to somebody I know that specializes in that product somehow. And so I don't want to talk about it like a business, but it really is a business. And so they're either sold, infants are sold for either organs, which is trafficking or sex. Um Unfortunately, we haven't dealt with the trauma of sexual abuse well in this country and Mm -hmm. sexual issues and addictions to pornography. And those things can lead to changing of your brain and without dealing with the trauma of whatever you faced, um, you become more addicted like a drug and pretty soon it's never enough. And so you get deeper and like nobody wakes up and says, hey, either I want to wake up and rape, rape children. It's a process of really uh, not being able to identify with humanity anymore and you become kind of you're just doing anything to feel something and unfortunately because we haven't dealt with the issues of trauma in this country we have a vast amount the biggest buyers are Americans and it is very deep many people's lives have been threatened over it for trying to expose these issues but we've got to deal with it. It is not something that we can continue to look the other way, live in our bubble and say, not my child, because I guarantee you, your child is going to school with somebody that is a scout, with somebody, it's middle class, lower class, upper class. This is not a class issue. This has nothing to do with an education issue. I know highly educated young ladies and men that got caught up in trafficking, um, everything from adults to young, young children. Um, and their parents sold them. So it's it's one of those things where we need to address it. And unfortunately, nobody wants to touch children. The survivor I spoke to, she just thought she had, she was running away with a boyfriend, you know? <laughs> she just thought, I'm just running away with a boyfriend. He convinced me that my, my family is bad and I needed to go with him and I did. And then he made me realize like, Oh, we need money. We, I need, we need you to do this. Like, and she said that she didn't realize she was being trafficked until years later after she was able to escape and she had no idea. And that's, I think, I think that's where education needs to come in. Everyone needs to be talking about what is it. And most of the time it's people, you know, you know, people who like, best friend group grooming you to be yeah boyfriend best friend you know like you said a father mm-hmm. so that's that's the thing the hope box actually does if you go through our training our hope box training or if you want to get accredited as a safe haven provider or you want to you know be certified in this we train on all of that stuff how the buying and selling's happening what they can do and you know so that it, with education we make different decisions and so that is something if people are interested in getting that training and i've even had a lot of parents ask me to come talk to them about how did you educate your daughter how did you teach her to be aware what were the triggers and 
it's so important that education is key and it's out there, but not only education that we fund, <laughs> that we create funding to get the message out there. And on top of that, that we begin to talk mm-hmm. and not be afraid of conversations. We don't live in a country anymore where we can be afraid to talk about sex with our children. Yeah. It's I agree. Time. And I'm sorry it has to happen at a young age, but I want my child to know before he's in a circumstance. And the first place a children a child learns it from is what they will compare it to. Right. And I gotta tell you, children that have been abused sexually, because we're talking about trauma. Mm-hmm. My son was abused and he um um by a fr- friend, somebody that they knew and when we started talking about that sex and stuff with all the kids and the boys and we have four boys, one daughter. And it's funny. It was one point I was like, Joel, I need you to teach, talk to the boys about this. I was kind of noticing they were wearing their sweatshirts in front. You can only imagine what was going on, you know, things. I was like, Joel, you got to help the boys out, you know? So he's talking, talking, it was very simple, open conversation. Um, I don't need to go too deep, but he started crying. And the other two boys started laughing because they're like, because of the conversation, you know, they're in middle school. They're like, yeah. you know, they're laughing. <laughs> right. Yeah, stop talking, you know? And then, um, but he started crying and I was like, why are you crying? Like, you're not in trouble. You haven't done it. This is normal. This is puberty, not in trouble. And he goes, this has been happening for a while. And I thought I was bad because something had happened to him as a child. So he correlated that anything like that is bad and he must be bad. And that I've always told him that what happened to you was bad, but you're not bad. They're two different things. Mm-hmm. And you have to identify them separately. And so we were able to pray over him and he was like, I'm so glad you told me. I just would have assumed like all this is dirty, but to be, break that off at a young age, instead right. of going through high school and college and marriage and always associating it as bad. I would never want him to live his life thinking that there's not a healthy side, yeah. you know, two things. And so again, it is so important to get to our children when they're young right. and wait till they're older. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually have a book. It's like, it talks about consent in it. And it's like, it's like my, well, I think it's my first book on feminism um, for boys, but it, it's all about consent and it's, it's really cute, you know? Um, But I feel like even at such a young age, you need to talk about consent. Like, you know, you don't force your children to hug everybody, you know, you don't, that's, and and I think that, cause I remember growing up like you, oh, your uncle just got here, give him a hug, like give him a hug now. And I'm like, Okay. And so then you get to a point where you're like, well, I'm supposed to make everybody happy and I'm supposed to do what my relatives say, you know, and you realize when you get older, like, no, that was the wrong thing to do. (laughs) So yeah, you're right. At a very young age, it needs to be talked about. Yes. And you're so right about that. I remember one time we were somewhere and a a friend of Joel and I's, not a close friend, but a friend walked up and was angry because my kids would not hug him. And he was like, what is, you need to get your kids. And I looked at him and said, our kids make their own decisions on who they will hug, whose lap they will sit on. And if they're uncomfortable, they have the right to hide behind me. Mm-hmm. And he was like, ah, I cannot believe you're teaching them disrespect like that. I was like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm protect. They, they have to know there's protection. Right. Um, 
And that's a safety net that I think most parents, and you're so right about that, but it is so hard raising kids in this generation. Um, we're first generation parents with all the technology and yeah. reach and exposure. And there's not a handbook. We can't call our mom like, what did you do when they got on Snapchat? You know, like, <laughs> exist like okay it's so important especially now more than ever to be educated on these issues and what children are facing well what more do you want to achieve with the hope box (laughs) what more I want to change the 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 way people see moms that choose adoption or moms that maybe lost their children to foster care um I think we have not done a service and understanding maybe their story or listening to what's going on. And in the community, I feel like there's a big disconnect between uh, people making the laws and the reality all the way down to the streets. I feel like there's a huge disconnect. Um, I really want to bring down the statistics in this country. I think we should be leading the rest of the world um, in other countries, abandonment's very normal to leave your child on the side of a street. It's not abnormal. I'll give you a story of that. I had a couple contact me and they were here on work visas and um, in their country, little girls or women in general aren't considered worth a lot. And their child was vacuumed out, the baby girl when they delivered her and she started to have seizures. So in his mind, she's broken. And if they tried to take, they love their little girl, but if they took her back to their country, she would not get medical care because she's female. She wouldn't get the support she needed. Mm -hmm. And so he called me and he said, I abandoned my baby. How do I abandon my baby? What do I do? And I was like, hold on. Do you have the child with you? He said, yes. I said, okay, where are you at? So we were able to sit down as a team and send a team in and say, what's going on and find out all the information. But in their country, if it's broken, who wants their baby? And I said, would you consider an adoption, at least an open adoption? Because I could tell the biological mom really was wrestling because she loved her child. And um, he said, he said, but but who 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 would want my baby? She's broken. She's a, she's nothing. She's broken. And I said, somebody has been praying for this baby. Please consider this you know, because she did need medical care. She needed more than uh, social services could give her. And so um, they agreed that I had a wife tugged him, you know, and they agreed to do an adoption. Well, they, we were able to find a home study approved family, which is what you need as a home study, who um, the wife had the same medical brain injury happen to her as a cheerleader mm-hmm. in high school. So she knew what doctors to go to. She knew how to advocate for her daughter. She knew what to do. And and they, they did an open adoption. They adopted her. She's like four now doing amazing. She was cleared after a year. And last year, the bio parents got to come visit and see that their daughter was doing wonderful. And that was very healing for them. And so that's an example of how out of touch we are with other countries. We've had Asians come in and, um, and they have a baby girl and they'll leave it in a hospital and nurses get furious. And then I'm able like, listen, in their country, she would have went to an orphanage where she's from. As bad as our system is, it's better than an orphanage in, you know, in that country. And so it, when you understand what's happening, you understand how much influence we could have to create the greatest generation ever if we would defend our children at the youngest age. Thanks again for joining me. 
You're so welcome. Thank you for having me and blessings to what you're doing. Thank you. Well, that was Sarah Keppen, child advocate, founder of The Hope Box and author of Call to Hope, the story of Sarah Keppen. For more information about Sarah, please visit atstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to my monthly magazine, Authentic Insider. Sarah has also contributed to the magazine's February issue. So if you want more from her and more in-depth inspirational stories, please subscribe. You can also find this podcast in video format on YouTube and IGTV. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and you've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Take care.